why would you carry on hiring engineers recently graduated from Stanford and paying them $350,000 a year for the privilege when you can hire equally good engineers in London, in Germany? I said, you know, when are you going to move your head office out of San Francisco? <laughs> What's up? I'm Tyler Sweat. Cue the dramatic music. This is All Quiet on the Second Front, a podcast where boring conversations around defense tech and national security come to die. Ready to get weird and learn some cool shit about emerging tech and the government? I thought so. Let's fucking go. This is a Soul Fire production. All right, what's up, everybody? I'm your host, Tyler Sweat. Welcome to another episode of All Quiet on the Second Front, the podcast where boring defense talk goes to die. We're going international today, so a little Pitbull theme, Mr. Worldwide. And I'm sitting over here in London, really excited to have good friend, colleague, and a huge sort of breadth of experience and knowledge, Paul Vingo with us today. So, Paul, thanks for taking some time to stop by. Hi, Tyler. Good to see you. Great to see you. So this is going to be a little bit more formal with the Brits. So everybody <laughs> everybody, bear with us here. He's got notes. It's going to be proper. Uh but so real talk, what I want to do is open up, can you sort of walk through your career? Because I try to explain you to a lot of people, <laughs> and there's not like a single vantage point you bring. Your experiences have sort of allowed you to see the world and experience things through all of these really what I would consider unique perspectives. Unpack that a little bit for the group here. Certainly. Um uh, you know, so the first thing is I'm quite old, so I've I've been around the uh, I've been around the boy a few times. So the experienced, last, <laughs> experienced. So the last uh, six or seven years, I've been running my own uh, consultancy company, very small, just me, until recently. Um, but what essentially I was involved in was technology consulting into the national security community, and, and the reason for that will come very clear in a minute. But for the last seven years, I was involved very much in helping government departments understand how to leverage the benefit of technology. And more recently, I've been very much focused on disruptive technologies. So the, the sort of technology that comes out of the uh, the disruptive uh, startup community. I was part of the National Security Strategic Investment Fund, which was a fund that was formed by UK government to, to identify British tech startups predominantly and invest government money into those tech startups and to get those disruptive technologies into the hands of users. So like UK's Incutel, it's, it's as, the, as the American sort of audience absolutely. is trying to draw and, a parallel. Um, it won't be a surprise. You know, we had very, very close ties with Incutel companies. Um, and, and of course, that experience was, was formative for me. What it's meant is that I now work with many Incutel companies to help them understand the sort of the, the approach to the UK market. But for the for sort of 10 years before setting up that small consultancy, I was in UK industry, in the defense industry. I was head of engineering for a tier two defense manufacturing company, which was a company that was born out of, you know, electromechanical building boxes and screwing them to vehicles. Uh, and then as they came into the, into the more recent era, those boxes became increasingly more complex, more technical, electronic, uh, software-based devices. Uh, and I have a software engineering background. So I was hired into that company initially to do a software engineering program, then became CTO, then became head of engineering. And, um, you know, that uh, company was was uh, very successful at the time in the a number of urgent operation requirements that the British Army were, were putting out into uh, industry. We had 
vehicles, thousands of vehicles overseas in Afghanistan and Iraq. And, you know, that company did very well on installing these electronic equipments. Yep. So counter ID equipment, communications equipment, iStar equipment, you know, was our sort of our thing. So, you know, I was in that organization where we were doing bids to government, navigating the government procurement process. So I became very familiar with how industry engages as a tier two company with the primes and with uh, the government procurement process, which is all experience and expertise that I've taken into consultancy, into the technology consultancy. But for 21 years before that, and that's just giving you an indication of how old I am, I was in the, uh, in the British Army, I was a Royal Signals Officer, and I therefore experienced the, the other side of the coin. I was buying this stuff from industry, I was setting the requirements, I was taking receipt of equipment and getting it in the hands of users and using it operationally. Uh, I retired from the Army in 2006, I was a full colonel at the time, working at Headquarters Army, and it was a period of great change in the Army. We were introducing all of the new digital communication systems, so satellite communications, theatre-wide area communications network systems, tactical communication systems. These were all the modern systems that were coming into play in the early 2000s. So I was really right at the front edge of that. So you're right, Tyler, it was um, poacher term gamekeeper. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, you know, I've experienced both customer and supplier for government and more recently working with small tech startups that are trying to, to get into the defense space. So as you talk about, you know, having that experience kind of working up to, you know, deputy CIO and sort of being senior in Royal Signals and MOD into sort of the national security, the investment side of the house, into the private side of the house as well. You know, what surprised you the most as you made that sort of transition initially, right? First couple decades up into right around that CIO sort of spot you're seeing change, you're sort of inside the machine, and then you pop out to the outside. What, what sort of caught you off guard there? I think that I, I reflect back on my military service, the, the two major challenges that the military have got, this is in no way uh, is undermining my you know, colleagues who are still doing great work there. It's um, you're in a closeted space. You, know, you have really very little experience of how industry works because you've probably not experienced it. You know, most most military join from school, from university. They have great careers in the military, but they're navigating the the internal bureaucracy. They're navigating the the processes that have been existing for many years, and they have real no experience of how stuff gets built, how stuff gets done in in the real world. Now, large organisations like DNS, the Defence Equipment and Supply Organisation, you know, they are established primarily to interface with industry, but it's not until probably major. Lieutenant Colonel, that you would ever, if ever, experience that engagement and really get an insight into how to interact with industry. And so one of the frustrations for me as a serving officer was the, the lack of ability for a large organization that was involved in government procurement, that was constrained by legislation and years of process. The frustration of that, that organization not being able to procure disruptive technologies quickly. And, and there's a number of reasons why it's just really challenging. Some of those reasons are institutional, some of them are legislative, some of them are just lack of understanding and experience of how to, to make best use of, of, of that relationship. The thing that most shocked me when I came out was quite how bad industry was treated by government. And that was me sort of seeing it from another perspective. On, on, you know, Industry is bound by the procurement rules and the procurement processes that are put in place. And those are expensive and long processes. 
and you know you, you talk about the value of death the journey for a, a small company the, the barrier to entry to government is is very high not only do you have to demonstrate that you are a legitimate and responsible supplier but you also have to demonstrate that your product is of value and you have to demonstrate that you are going to sustain as a company in order not to undermine as it were any capability by having delivered a, delivered a thing so i find that the challenges for small companies is 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 even greater and working out how you navigate that bureaucracy how you navigate that journey how you can afford it how you can fund it is is one of the biggest challenges for any organization trying to break into the defense market and it's not a problem faced exclusively by small companies you know even some of the large primes who decide to enter another part of defense you know will quite comfortably put away two or three years uh, before they acknowledge that they've they've even achieved penetration if you want an example i was working with a us company a large fortune 100 company and they believed it would be seven years from start to getting a credible market penetration um you know in seven years is a lot of money yep. i think it's a bigger horizon than a lot of folks consider when you're looking at sort of defense tech or national security but you know want to go back to to sort of your point the relationship between government and commercial industry and i'll take it even a level down and government into sort of emerging disruptive tech sort of that startup community i think what we've seen especially in the US is it's become it's become in vogue to be doing defense tech and i think it's almost seen as like a novelty and there's on one side there's you know folks are looking at like the conflict in ukraine or whatever and there's everyone's screaming like we've got to be doing more like the time is now and on the other side you've got sort of a lot of hand waving like i said it's novelty it's neat there's just not a lot of discipline around it how are you seeing sort of the rise of the defense tech defense dual use kind of startup and the government that relationship and are you seeing more of an understanding from the government on how those companies how they operate the metrics and sort of the scenarios that drive them and an attempt from the government to sort of meet them maybe where they are or make it a little less burdensome to come on or is it still Hey, it's that big problem. It's still a pretty material barrier. And, you know, it's still incumbent upon company A, B, or C to navigate that themselves. I mean, really, really good question. And I think that the culture is changing, but it's very slow. And I think there's two dynamics. Let's look at it from the perspective of defense. Defense rightly wants to have the best equipment and the best capability to deliver success in the extreme environments that they work in and fight in. And one should never underestimate the, the demands on technology that need to go into those operational spaces. And so most defense procurement process is very much around, we must have the unique thing that we need to win wars, yep. to be successful in operations. Uh, and, and clearly that creates a market space for very specific and very bespoke defense technologies. The area where, I, rightly, companies do have uh, markets where they build those specific devices, those specific capabilities, and they are defence companies, yep. they, they meet that need. But Defence in UK the, is a massive organisation and it has many, many functions that are no different from any other corporate globally. HR functions, supply functions, security functions, you know, people doing day-to-day jobs of buying 
consumables and commodities. These are no different. The things that civil servants and soldiers, sailors, and airmen alike are doing are no different from their their peers, citizens in, in, in industry. And so there is a huge amount of best practice and technology that can just be lifted straight from what is best practice and what is being used elsewhere. Yeah. And therein lies one of the biggest challenges is, first of all, culturally, government acknowledging that what is already existing is useful and has utility and can probably be bought without change, without yeah. adoption, without adaption. And, and whilst that perhaps was not the same in the past, there's still a tendency for government departments say, we love that, but we'd like it in this color, or we'd like it in, you know, we'd like it to do this thing that we know nobody else does. And getting that sort of 100%, it must do what we want, is a, is a mental and cultural barrier that, you know, slowly but surely, I think government is getting over. Why? Because it's more expensive when you ask for those things to be changed uniquely for government, especially as nowadays the government market is a much smaller and less rich market than perhaps you know the dual you know everyone all other citizens using this so i think that's where disruptive technology companies where it's really important if you choose to sell to defense or national security that your product actually has a a non-defense national security market preferably and you know you know inqtel and ensif both have this as part of their charter that's where actually the company gets most of its growth. You know, it's the rest of the world. It's the corporate use of your product that is going to make the company big. It's going to make the company grow. It's the the large volume of users that informs the roadmap, informs the evolution of your product that the government then benefits from. And getting that mental understanding into government thinking is, is still a challenge. Even though in the innovation ecosystem, people have got their head around this, convincing the the core programs, the programs of record, that actually it's in their interest to buy off the shelf <laughs> uh, as much as yeah. possible because you're getting the benefit of an evolved product that's evolved through millions of users, not just you know tens of thousands of users. And the 80% solution could be good enough. And I acknowledge that you know there is there are use cases where that's definitely not the answer. But for the majority of things that are done in government, there's probably an answer that is already available in industry. Yeah. I'd agree with that. I want to pull a string on, you know, talk about sort of market sizing, dual use, you know, commercial versus gov. Sort of you've got this unique position of sort of the Incutel NCIF relationships and being able to see, you know, Incutel or US defense tech, national security tech companies that are expanding into UK and vice versa. Uh, you know, I'd be really curious to to hear your thoughts on what you're seeing or what you've seen as sort of the common mistakes folks are making as, you know, they're in their head. They're like, yeah, I'm a U.S. defense company. I'm going to go do UK. It's going to be great. And I mean, everyone reads the news, right? Like it has not gone well for a lot of companies this year <laughs> in like pretty public fashion. Yeah. Unpack that a little bit for everybody. Yeah. And, you know, I'd like to think I've been part of the failure of a few companies here in UK as well. <laughs> Congrats. <laughs> I think the first the first point to, to make is, you know, why would a US company that's growing rapidly choose UK as its first, shall we say, non-US region? And there's an inherent logic in it, which is UK is a partner in the national security community. It's part of the Five Eyes community. And UK and US have a special relationship, which is often talked about and understood really well. So there's there's straight away an affinity. Let's go to UK. They it seems a logical place to come to. It's, it speaks the same language. So therefore, it's easier to do business with. We have a similar government structure. You know, we're 
sort of liberal democracies that, that must be easier to do business with. We're not Canada. And therefore, you know, we're not just up the road. We're not just Americans. We're not, there's that relationship, you know, is, is perceived as being sufficiently different and sufficiently far away. It's overlapping time zones. So actually it's able to do business in, which of course is, is not the case with somewhere like Australia or New Zealand or South Africa. And as a result, UK seems to be the obvious first choice. But let's also just sort of unpack that a little bit. You know, two nations divided by one language. You know, I often say to, to my clients, you know, imagine you were doing business with Germany. You know, how would you do, how would you cope with the, the translation? How would you cope with the language difference? And they said, well, we have to have German linguists. I said, well, you need British English linguists. You know, this is no different. The fact that we speak the same language, the reality is we don't. Yeah. And our governments are completely different not just in how they do business and how they conduct and make decisions, but also the history of the government. You know, the, the legislation has evolved over many years and, you know, things exist for historical reasons. And then by the same token, the scale is different. Population of America is 350 million. Population of UK is only 50, 60 million. And that means that the amount of money available is different. You know, the US has the largest defence budget on the planet, probably with the exception of China. But the US defence budget is significantly larger than ours by an order of magnitude. And we're probably larger than all the other English-speaking countries, uh, you know, by an order of magnitude. So when you come to a startup, tech startup conversation about coming to UK, having a reality check, having to manage expectations about, you know, what the scale of ambition could be, what the uh, opportunities might be, how the process of federal government versus UK government works is the sort of starting conversation we have. And, And most failures, I believe, are born out of and I've witnessed this, are born out of an unrealistic ambition for the region in both terms of scale and time. Do you think that it's a really interesting juxtaposition of sort of the two, two sort of themes you put together there? There's the need to understand sort of the fundamental nature of the market, right? Like I always market sizing. Yeah. I've got to understand the sizing. I've got to understand the personas. I've got to decide how to buy, what's actually addressable, what's serviceable. Um, and you were saying there's there's an unrealistic expectation. So is it, we're not going to name names, so we don't have to get spicy, <laughs> but is it hubris? Is it uh, intellectual laziness is the wrong word. Is it is it a byproduct of years of very cheap capital and not rewarding companies for being healthy and doing the work and rewarding companies for just raising outsized amounts of money for whatever reason? Or is it, hey, it's it's obfuscated, like to actually get to the sizing and manage expectations, there's a degree of obfuscation you've got to overcome. And, you know, that's just going to take time. Sort of, to me, it's got to be somewhere on that spectrum. What do you think that is? I, no, I think there's a, there's a load of factors and we can, we can unpack all of them uh, in slower time. I think there's a couple of challenges. Doing business with a West Coast, Silicon Valley startup culture, is fascinating. You know, I had a conversation with the CEO one day of one of the companies, an Inkytar company, they'd come to UK and I said, you know, and we were in COVID. And so his engineering team were now largely working remotely. And I said, why would you carry on hiring engineers recently graduated from Stanford and paying them $350,000 a year for the privilege when you can hire equally good engineers in London, in Germany, in I said, you know, when are you going to move your head office out of San Francisco? <laughs> and the answer was actually the reason, and it was a good answer. And he said, I'm in San Francisco because I 
rub shoulders with investors and other CEOs of startups who are hugely successful. It's about being in San Francisco for the investment culture, the investment, you know, the venture capitalist community. It's about being with high quality engineers in in one place, which is a is a good argument, but it's quite, in my opinion, quite myopic. If you look at the global venture landscape now, and you look at the global engineering skills and capabilities, and to be fair, a number of West Coast companies are sort of now looking at their particular version of technology, whether that be AI or whether that be, you know, some other different technology and working out which are the best academic institutions globally to go and tap into or which countries are the best to have a team that is able to service their global ambition. But it's a slow journey. I think the other dynamic is US investment is significantly higher. You know, a Series A round here in the UK is anything from five million to fifteen million pounds. A Series A in the US could be significantly higher in dollars, but that also means that there's a lot more money to spend, and that for yeah. creates a higher ambition of how much more money you've got to earn. Yeah, it's 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 an irony that if you are a successful company here and in profit, and you don't need investment, you sort of get ignored because you're not in the sort of you know how much have they been invested in. It's not an indicator of success. Ironically, profit probably is. Yeah. So, you know, we talk about sort of the changes you've seen, the challenges of folks understanding each other's operating models and sort of business models from the commercial side to the government. Talk about sort of NCIF and EQTEL and companies and companies sort of having challenges, you know, understanding UK, European markets, you know, thought being thoughtful about sort of where am I deploying infrastructure, setting that up. You know, as we're sort of like taking the final turn here, what are you working on now? And sort of, right, there's a a clear theme of sort of what we're talking about. What's Vindu up to? Sort of where are you guys positioned? So we're very small, you know, team of a team of people who have experience working with U.S. companies viscerally. We were employees of or contracted by. And we learned a lot of lessons over the last three or four years of watching uh, mostly inquietile companies have an ambition for the region, come to the region, set off on a journey of, of tapping into the innovation ecosystem that is here in UK with our encouragement and with our UK government encouragement because the technologies exist and they're mature, but also seeing some of those companies not be as successful as they'd hoped. And I think there's now an, an emergent group of companies, yours clearly being one of them, who are learning those lessons, you know, be blunt you know that that requires a degree of humility and understanding but also it requires a different approach to a global operation and and again without you know being without being rude about any other organization that's tried this success i think comes from having a global perspective rather than a the american business model the american operating model works everywhere else um because that's shocking that that doesn't work it clearly doesn't work yeah um and you know it it is it, it is a growth mindset that has recognition that if you're going to be a global company, then you put your resources, you put your efforts in the best place globally to generate success. And, and, And that means being open to different approaches and different ideas. It also acknowledges that every country is a proud organization in their own right and presumably also has responsibilities to their own citizens and their own governments have those responsibilities. You know, it sometimes comes as a surprise to people who say, well, why would we buy from an American company when there's a British company that's got a similar, if not, you know, even if it's a worse product, we'll buy British. Why? Because it's British and the 
you know, the upside for the UK is the corporation tax, the income tax, the employee security, the growth of the you know sovereign capability. Well, as soon as people get their head around that other countries have that sovereign desire, um, then a global thinking organisation or global thinking company can actually tap into that and, and benefit by by playing to that. So if I were to summarize that for listeners, you guys sort of sit as an interesting interlocutor to help folks understand. And, you know, we talked earlier about sort of the challenges and sort of those expectations or aspirations, not only to sort of frame and understand that, but also then set off on that journey of how would they effectively bring their tech, you know, throughout UK, European markets, stuff like that. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, the first litmus test for me I'm Trying is, to give you some free marketing here. Yeah. The first, <laughs> the first test for me is, is the technology, is the technology good? Would I buy it? Yeah. Do I, do I, uh, you know, am I comfortable representing that technology to my colleagues and my former colleagues? And I think that's also a really, really valid point. The community here, by the nature of the, of the size, is very small and, and interconnected. You know, all, all the people that we will go and have conversations with, you know, we grew up with, we stood in the same trench with them and we've served with them and our children go to the same schools and, you know, they're people of the community and they move within the community. So it, you're not ever in a, in a sales mode where, you know, you're never going to see this person again. You're, you're already intimately linked and you're going to be intimately linked in the future. So I have to be very confident that when I evangelize somebody's product, it's because I believe in the product, not because I'm an employee and paid to do so. Yeah. And that's really important. And I think the second thing is I then um, have to establish essentially a relationship like we did where I say, you know, I've got to be honest with you. You know, if I think your ambition in the region is, is too great or, you know, you're expecting things too quickly, then we've got to manage that expectation because you'll get upset if, if you don't achieve your ambition. And if somebody hasn't a, you know, guided you on whether it's a, a reasonable ambition or not, then, you know, you find yourself at, at a loss. Or worse, committing to your investors something that can't be achieved. Um, so I think that's where we sit very much as the ball bearing between UK government and a US, you know, inky tail tech company yep. and bearing the pressure from both sides. And I think where we're different, and we're not an advisory company, where we're different is we then roll our sleeves up, get our boots on and we, we walk the walk and, and, yep. and, and, and do the, and do the stuff on the ground. And that, and that's why we're more expensive than, than an advisory company. We're actually doing, you know, acting as if we were employees on the ground. And I think that's also our, a real strength. There's also there's a cultural boundary there. We can act as your as if we were your employees without being employees. And I think that's a massive strength. When people see us, they know that we're doing it because we believe in your product, not yeah. because we're being paid as an employee to 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 advocate for something or being told how to do something, which is also often the case for an employee. So um, yeah, well, I think it's it's small, it's growing, it's growing fast. We've got yeah. some good clients. And we believe in the technology and those clients, to their credit, are listening hard to how we are proposing they take on the market. Awesome. It's a neat spot to be. And, uh, you know, I want to, one, thank you for for sharing sort of the whole, the totality of your background. Because, again, I think that's, that's one of the things when we first met, drew me to you was, you know, having experience sort of in all of the different seats around a table. Because if you think about sort of, that value map and what that looks like, right? There are capital allocators, there are government employees, there are users, there are builders, there are sellers, there are sort of the the coaches and Sherpas. I don't think many folks have had sort of that experience or that career where they're able to have like real actual empathy for each of those roles. 
And that allows you to then weave together better strategies and not only manage expectations, but be confident in your ability to go execute. So we're hurtling, hurtling towards close. You know what the last question is because somebody told you and you watched one. So I'm going to throw one random question in before and see what you say. And then we'll get to the actual question. Uh, so, you know, you've done a couple of rotations around the sun, right? I think you got a good idea who you are, right? If we had to go do like a little ayahuasca tour, what would your spirit animal be? <laughs> it's loose. <Yeah. laughs> Ice. All right. It's a good answer. Slow is smooth. <laughs> And then the actual last question, right? So once it's done, you know, you said, Hey, I've done enough. I'm going to hang it up, retire. What's that look like for you? You know, I always give the example of maybe on the side of a mountain, you know, bunch of acres, a little bit of a river, outdoor kitchen, you know, Charlie and Jack out there playing their families at some point, dogs running everywhere. Wife's still happy, you know, life good. No neighbors for like 10 miles in either direction. <laughs> What's that look like for you? I'm lucky. I've, 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 got many of the things I want. So, you know, I am already in the twilight. So I'm staring down the barrel of retirement. And so I've chosen to do something that I enjoy. For me, it's about doing something I enjoy. And I am, I'm probably happiest I've been for a long time yes. in that I'm engaged in technology, which I love. I evangelize technology. I still get to fiddle around with it. I'm engaged with a community that I've worked in and supported for many, many years in the public sector. Uh, I'm engaging with great people who are coming at some great technologies in America and I'm being, you know, we have an exclusive American client base. Yeah. So for me, that's the exciting part. You know, I already have ownership of a, of a 1789 mill. It has a river that runs underneath it. It's an old Flint mill. It's in Staffordshire. It's in the Peak District. I already have the big house. Yeah. I already have the, you know, the, the, the land. I've had the dogs. Yeah. Um, you know, my, my daughter's grown up and left, uh, left home and she's got a great life. We've set her up for success. So, you know, for me, it's now about enjoying myself and, um, and, and reaping the rewards of that success. You know, um, there's still life in the old dog yet. See, I'm glad, I'm glad you got there for a minute there. It sounded like I was just gonna have to get an arrow out of the quiver and just get ready for the Viking funeral. <laughs> I can't see myself not working for a yeah. while. For a I while get that. Yet. Yeah, I get that. Well, Paul, thanks a ton, brother. This was awesome. Guys, if you're thinking about expanding into UK, you know, have questions about it. Absolutely. Look, Paul and the team up. This is not a sponsored post. <laughs> this is actual just advocacy and support. But this is great. Hopefully the first of many sort of conversations we have over in the UK and about Europe. And uh, thanks for tuning in. Yeah, thank you very much. See you. Wow, look at you. You made it to the end. Thanks for listening. Hope you learned something. Don't forget to leave a passive-aggressive review. It wouldn't be a podcast without some show notes. So check them out to learn more about me, Second Front. Stay weird.